If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Davi Ottenheimer. Uh, he handles security over at Interrupt. In addition, he holds a master's in international history from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Welcome to the show, Davi. Thanks for having me. So, uh, I'd like to start with kind of a signpost question, which is, what is artificial intelligence? Why is it artificial? Like, is it artificial because it's not really intelligence, or uh, just because we made it? And what is intelligence, for that matter? Well, those are great questions. I had this debate the other day with intelligence being, you know, we were using Einstein as an example, arguing over whether he was intelligent of anyone. It's the pursuit of knowledge in a way that is actionable, uh, which means being critical of one's state. In fact, if you can say you're dissatisfied so that you acquire more knowledge, that's a form of intelligence gathering. And the more you gather intelligence to understand better the world around you, in theory, the better or more precise your actions become. So it's essentially a four-stage process of this information collection, storage, processing, and then analysis based on that uh, process to change action, which then boils down into more simplified intelligence, which is sort of a dogmatic approach, but very functional. Uh, it's something that, you know, actions become easier, they become more routine and minimal judgment. So learning is really centered around that sort of secondary style of intelligence. Can you learn these steps? Whereas I think, I think true intelligence, when we talk about artificial intelligence, is a machine's ability to collect store process and analyze the data. Machine's ability to collect, store, process, and analyze data. Yeah. So a machine can't be dissatisfied with anything, right? And probably you can't really say a machine pursues knowledge. A machine is entirely passive. So can machines actually be intelligent? Yeah, for sure. They definitely can be dissatisfied because really uh, dissatisfaction is a, is a measure of accuracy, if you will, of quality. So if you say, for example, the I, I use um, image classification all the time. Like if you have a tree and a dog, you can generally know if you're talking flora or fauna. If you find out at the end that it was a dog and you thought it was a tree, then you can say that was an inaccurate or uh, poor decision. So that's, you know, self-criticism, I think, maybe evoking feelings in the human, but really criticism can be just a logical exercise. We, we talk about philosophers like Wittgenstein, who basically says, you know, can you get to a conclusion that's logical? You end up in a dead end to go back to the start, repeat, until you find an answer that actually is logical. So that's, that's the sort of criticism I'm talking about. Failure, flaws, mathematics, it happens all the time. You know, we have this distinction between general intelligence and what we know how to do with narrow intelligence, which we primarily are tricked there. It's pretty simple, right? We take a bunch of, with, with machine learning, we take a bunch of data about the past, we study it, we look at, for patterns, and we use those patterns to project into the future. Is that a pathway in your mind to general intelligence? I have this sense that it's absolutely unrelated to it, that that is so foreign to what people do, or one example of general intelligence, that 
it's just kind of faux. Like, I don't think a computer knows how to play chess. Uh, it certainly doesn't play the game in any sense of the word that a human plays it. Um, so do you think we're on a path to having something that's as creative and versatile as a human? Or is is that some other endeavor that we haven't even really started down yet? Well, you make a very good point that the measure of creativity, especially when you use words like play or fun for that matter, these emotive states that humans have developed maybe beyond the grasp of the computer, which is really just following the rules. But I think it's actually sort of the opposite. We created games that are very rule-based and then called them fun. But were they, is it fair to say that they're really fun, that there's really joy, or that people are playing them when they are so rule-bound? Checkers or chess or Go, for that matter, which is uh, significantly larger decision trees. You have to basically tap into your subconscious to be an athlete, but you're really following rules on the field. So, yes, computers can definitely play if we're talking about follow the rules and get to a successful outcome measured by judges who make sure the rules haven't been violated. But whether we get into concepts of joy and shared experience, that's a whole different discussion. I really... Do you believe I, that people are machines? Do you think are, there's anything in your brain, in your mind, that isn't mechanistic, that can't be explained with physics and chemistry? Are we basically just... Because if we're machines, then someday we'll build a mechanical person. And then that yeah. mechanical person will double in capability every two years. So do you think fundamentally we're mechanistic entirely? I feel like that was a, a process of philosophy that you know Bentham was probably most famous for. In you know, the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, we expressed the human brain in terms of machines, gears even, you know, the sort of idea that we could quantify all actions, even mathematically, and then build a formula around ethics doing a mathematical formula. So I think that we've, down, we've been down that road for centuries, and I'm much more attracted to Hume's uh, approach, which is, it doesn't say that the humans are machines per se, but that we have sort of information that we collect. I mean, as a historian, I'm biased, because that's what I do. I collect huge amounts of information, I do analysis of it, and then I try to predict what the right action will be in the future. That's, that's the whole study of history. Uh, I believe there's a sort of percentage there, which gets you to about 80, 90%. And this is where Hume, I think, is really genius. So you have a sort of predictive quality, and then you get into the sort of un unknown space, the sort of 10%. And that's just the ability to sort of take a chance, take a risk. And I don't think machines are very good at that. That's what's fundamentally human, is to understand this, like, uh, this new world that goes beyond the, the predicted future state that we know into the unknown. In, in other words, a very practical version of this is, Every doorknob you see could potentially be different than every other doorknob you've ever seen, which would create paralysis, but you learn from an early age as a human that you attempt things, even though you don't know for certain what that doorknob will behave like. And, and that's really where ethics sort of plays in as well. Like, can you allow people to do things that don't have an absolutely known mathematically calculated outcome? And the answer is yes, because they're in a general category of being in the right and wrong space generally dog, generally tree. And as long as you're in the general space, then you don't have to have absolute information about everything. You just need to have enough to know whether you're trending right, wrong, or in the proper area. Why do you think it is we're so good at being trained on data sets of one? You know, I could sketch a little alien on a paper and hold it up to the webcam, and then you could find that alien, even if it was like rendered in 3D flesh or whatever, you could find that in a photo, even if it's hiding behind a tree. Like, we're so far away from machines being able to do that. 
what do you think we're doing there that we haven't learned how to instantiate in a computer? Well, I think it's the economics of the market. I think that we are using a lot of cheats and shortcuts in the machines, and to make them better would be very expensive. So the question becomes, who wants to fund machines that are that good? And what we've seen is people who have a particular point to prove or a particular use case. Now, the military famously wants to achieve some end, will pour money into uh, machines getting significantly better. I mean, AI really is a manifestation out of the military, right? Uh, any aircraft guns at uh, World War II and the 1950s, we saw a lot of research by the military into improving this intelligence gathering. Now, the CIA, for that matter, was a human intelligence gathering operation. The whole concept of it was, you know, essentially to be what machine learning or AI is today. So reasons for people putting money into things getting better is what determines why things are so bad and whether they are critical enough to improve them. I think people are satisfied at very low levels of success. And in fact, Google's famously, uh, or maybe infamously, uh, good at celebrating really, really low levels of success. I mean, IBM does as well. They say we won chess, therefore we're going to cure cancer. That's pretty sad. But the, in fact, that's a gamification of the human ability, marketing, a human ability to accept low wins. They're saying, wouldn't you trust us in your business because we want a chess game? That's, that's a crazy leap of faith. Uh, Google says, okay, we've solved Go, so don't you want to trust us with your data to, to be doing you know, advertising mining and targeted advertising? And that's, again, a crazy leap of faith. So what I found is cars, for example, uh, one particular example, there was a Cambridge group that was boasting that they had 90% accuracy in classifications of images. So I simply threw images from around the world at it, and I was able to break it at least 50% of the time. And then later researchers were able to prove that they could break it reliably 90% of the time. And that was because they used the cheat. You know, the, the way they were able to get such certainty was they were looking for color codes. That's not what the world is based on. Grass is brown, grass is green. If you don't, or different parts of the world have different colors of uh, buildings and stones. So if you don't account for that sort of disparity, if you just take one thing and just do a quick search, you're engineering for a very low standard of quality. So I think that's why we find a lot of machines are so poorly constructed, is just the amount of money and time people want to put into them. What, what motivates them? You put a lot of energy, thought, time, and effort into thinking about how companies use the data that they collect. You've already mentioned it a couple of times in this interview. Can you talk about your thoughts on that and what you're doing, the kinds of projects you're in right now in that space? Yeah, so one of the big issues is uh, big data lakes, for example, were very uh, popular a few years ago. And I was working uh, from 99 to about 2009, I was working a lot in cloud architecture, building cloud environments. So I was pretty early, early with VMware, early with cloud. Wrote a book that I published in 2012, realized that the cloud infrastructure was really being used for massive amounts of data collection and got heavily involved in securing data lakes. Realized early on that pulling all the data into one giant repository which is kind of the holy grail of intelligence, if you will. You have all the information in the world. What can you do with it? Is kind of like what the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy predicted. You get this 42 from the machine, and nobody knows what it means or what to do with it. Instead, you actually don't need all the information. You just need the most relevant information. And again, David warned us in the 1700s, being intelligent is a lot about getting rid of data, knowing what you don't need to look at. So that kind of opens the door to security models, which is what I'm working on now, that actually distribute and control data at a localized level? What if you allow people to retain ownership in a way that you only access it based on authorization, based on permissive access, when you need it for specific access? That actually maps to what the latest neuromorphic chips are doing, which are essentially silicon brains, 
I'm finding that they have low energy consumption and they have extremely high speed because they only open the doors on the decision tree that are necessary for the types of information they're looking at. In other words, you go down the, the tree versus the dog decision tree, that's a totally se separate model, and so the data can actually have a data boundary between them. I'm not allowed to look at dogs, but I can look at trees. I'm a botanist, uh, and vice versa. Veterinarians are going to look at animals, but they don't need to look at trees. So I'm working on ways of, um, this sounds large and impressive, but it's really, I think, fundamental. We're, we're looking at how to reinvent the web in a way that when you access data, you are doing it for a localized instance of that data, not a massively centralized one. So instead of a Facebook having all the data or a LinkedIn having all the data on everyone that they then go and access, everyone keeps their data. And LinkedIn is an app that then says, hey, I'd like to serve your data to someone else. Would you allow that? And what would you allow? And that really has implications for AI in a big way because you're talking about machines needing access to information to be intelligent can you restrict that information to only what they need to know? And can you restrict it in the owner's best interest? Can they actually set the criteria? Because a lot of what machines are meant to do, solve cancer, for example, uh, some people advocate giving up all information. Uh, Bill Gates famously wanted to get everyone's blood information to solve malaria. And that's a terrible, terrible model. Uh, I think Jimmy Carter had a much more practical approach when he solved for disease without trying to collect everyone's information. So these are ways that I look at how do I build security into the world of technology such that the next generation of machines will be very successful at solving things without at the same time destroying people's ability to protect their privacy. You know, facts, the ownership of facts has been kind of a, it's a new idea in a way. Like if I walk down the street at noon, that fact is owned by anybody who saw me. Ah, he walked down the street at noon yesterday. Uh, if I go into my coffee shop and I order the same thing every day, to the point that when I start going in there, they just make me what I've ordered every other day, uh, they own that fact. And we, like I said, we've never really had to wrestle with the ramifications of what that meant. But, but right now, they, quote, own it. They can sell it. They can do whatever they want with it. I, and so, if I go to Google and search for, um, you know, uh, best uh, printer paper, they own that and they use that to inform the ads they show me and all of that. Are you thinking about a way that, and not only do they own it, but my toolbar vendor and my ISP and all the people who handled it all the way up the chain are privy to that fact? Or is what you're working on a way that Google doesn't remember that's what I searched for, or they don't get to combine that with some fact from someplace else, or or what exactly? Like mechanically, what are you? What? Are, how would that work? Well, unfortunately, I have to say I'm working on all of it, and that makes it sort of a, a slow-moving process. But very tactically, what I've worked on, for example, is shifting the keys that are used for encryption to the client side instead of the server side. So the client the application, if you will, decides what the database can see that it's using to store all the data. That fundamentally means it has control over self-determination over its data. So if you store data on Google, you are only allowing them to see certain aspects of that data. Uh, homomorphic gets a lot of attention, but it's really a very tiny tip of the iceberg technology. It's best for integers, it's very slow, but there's a lot of other technology we're looking at, encryption, key management, 
that allows data to still be used, manipulated, understood, um, searched, indexed, etc., without exposing it to the platforms that it is running on. So that's sort of a tactical approach, the step-by-step -step to, to where we're headed. But I think in a, in a bigger picture, I'm not a lawyer, uh, and a lot of this gets into, you know, when you say it's a fact and you can't, for example, copyright a, a fact. I mean, that's based on laws and they vary around the world. So lawyers do warn me in the United States, for example, you have data in your body, you don't own that. That needs to go to some escrow and it's owned, especially if you go to a doctor, the doctor has an obligation to own or maintain that data even outside of you. You have these issues of um, data being collected before you're born in ultrasound. You have data uh, after your death, of course. So who owns that DNA especially? Who has access to that? So how do you make decisions when you're not even technically in a position to make those decisions about your own data? So we're trying to figure those problems out. And when you really pull back, it gets into the question of if I'm really going to own my data, does technology offer me choice? In, because let's say there is no universal fact, non-fact, but I need to have decisions based on the country I'm in and the laws and the changing laws about who I give access to and who I don't and for how long. So can I take access back? Can, is there an ephemeral? All these answers are yes. I mean, there are ways technology can do this. It's just a matter of finding people that are willing to fund and sponsor. So the last two years, I was successful in convincing a company to fund and develop the client-side encryption, which should fundamentally change the industry, the global industry of data. Um, I'm now working on another project with Inrupt where we're hoping to not only provide that level of safety and security, but also break apart the requirement to have data stored in one place. So you can store it wherever you want, and it's portable, and that gives you more self-determination. And are you largely worried about companies using this data or about how governments might misuse it, or are you just going to say both? Like, what, what kind of keeps you up at, at night worrying? That's a good question, because threat models, for me, are meant to be designed for people who are going to have the data, and not necessarily my threat model, but theirs. And so I try to anticipate people who worry about their government and people who worry about the corporations, because it depends on where you are. Sometimes one is worse than the other. But, uh, but you know, kind of a server-side encryption can be outlawed in, in parts of the, of the world that, you know, just fundamentally would reject that model. Do you worry about that happening? I don't worry about it. I just think of, of ways to deal with it. I mean, one of the things I did was try to expose and, and uh, elevate the story of Operation Vula, which was uh, Tim Jenkins' brilliant encryption system that was used to take down the apartheid regime. Uh, so he built a key management system, really, that worked on a very resilient system, worked on public phones, pay phones, and answering machines and tape recorders, and was able to get messages all the way into Nelson Mandela jail. So basically, as a security professional, you give me a threat model, and then I give you options of how to build for it. I, to judge is different. It's a whole ethical model is different. Or let me put it this way. When we talk about facts being facts, you know, Newton, for example, had a theory of gravity, and we accept in the science world that gravity is this fact, and everybody has to agree with it. If you don't believe in gravity, there's probably something else going on. Well, I feel like David Hume around the same time was basically coming forward and saying ethics have facts. You know, there's a science to ethics. And I think we greatly underestimate the, that science, but I still hold it separate. So if you want me to talk about strong encryption or key management, that's much more of an exercise in procedure. 
and mathematical measurement. But if you want to talk about safety and the ethical use of technology, that's a different science. So, and I, I try not to confuse the two. You know, as long as there have been codes, you know, there have been code breakers, and then and there's always been this kind of like 3,000-year-long struggle between who has the upper hand. Is it easier to make an unbreakable code or break the supposedly unbreakable code? Do you, what do you think in the end of, is the Internet? Is the Internet an empowering technology for people? Like when it re reaches its fruition, which, you know, you have a vision of, of what that might look like or at least directionally, what do you think that looks like long-term in the Internet? Is it in the end a force uh, for those in power to hold on to power or for those who aren't empowered to protect themselves? Well, it's, it's both. Like most technology, you, it's augmentation. And augmentation doesn't tell you if it's for good or for evil. Uh, that's one of the concerns I have, is that we need to recognize that if you give people technology and you allow them augmentation, there's two things happening. One, within a domain, they're getting an upper hand over those who don't have it. But then there's also a domain break or a shift. And then there's really a problem because not only do they have the upper hand, even if there were people who didn't have it, but now they have an upper hand over people who don't even understand it. And I got asked about the carrier pigeon the other day, for example. And as a historian, you know, carrier pigeons were one of the most successful biologically evolved birds in history and probably the biggest bird flocks in the world at the time in the 1840s, 1850s. They were eliminated, completely extinct in the United States by, uh, and maybe the world by 1915, 16. That's because there was a domain shift, and that was the railroad and the telegraph, which told people exactly where to go to kill them all. And they couldn't evolve out, you know, the domain shift. And I see these domain shifts in AI, particularly. When you have the ability to generate uh, fake imagery, it's not that you can't detect fake imagery. It's that people don't even know that it's been done. But once you know it's been done, then the arms race really starts. And it's actually very, very simple to detect fake imagery once you apply technology to it. Anybody who's ever done fake images, who's created them, knows how hard it is to get them right. Again, if you're critical of your own work, you look at it and you go, ah, oh, it's still not good enough, still not good enough. Uh, and anyone who's played with this, uh, Goodfellow's research is probably some of the best. You know, if you take a school bus, this example sticks in my mind, and you add in just enough pixels from a picture of an ostrich, Machines that only look at a subset of that information, which is compression in another word, uh, right? It only looks at a subset of the information because it's been compressed. It sees the ostrich, not the school bus. That's a huge problem, not just because, hey, you can play with the images, but because if I want someone to be run over in the street or hit, then I change how they're being judged by the thing that's coming at them. And that fundamentally changes. That's a domain break that if you don't know that's happening to you, that's really, really dangerous. So technology is augmenting. And whether it's used for good or bad is an important decision people who make the technology need to be aware of. They need to know um, IBM famously created the machines that were used for the, for the Holocaust, Germany's Holocaust. They consciously chose to deliver machines for genocide. So that's the decision that companies... Do you think that social media and the Internet in general are technologies that uh, promote democracy and self-government, or are they restricted? I think what the research has shown, the political scientists who study this have shown that if you allow a network to be centrally controlled, such as Facebook does, even though you call it social media and it is connecting people, you've created a choke point that allows essentially a cult or a centralized, top-down uh, 
leadership model to flourish, not independent thought. So for things to flourish, you have to have a peer-based model that allows for expression to not be controlled centrally. So it's, it seems counterintuitive for people to say, we're going to bring democracy to places by introducing a centrally controlled pipeline of information. Now, it, to argue against that, you also have the opportunity to bring new information into a market that was closed. So I think that's where people get confused. Here's an environment that didn't have a fresh source of information, and we're going to introduce one that's going to bring in a new perspective. The problem is they bring it in with just that perspective, and then they don't seem to understand that they're destroying the market by trying to overwhelm it with a singular view. I think the biggest problem on the Internet, like the biggest problem on, on the web, is that you don't know what's true and what isn't true. Like in the end, um, you don't. Well, I, and, and I, I love wonder if artificial intelligence is going to be able to solve that, whether you can hover over a statement and have it essentially fact-checked, or is that too nebulous of a thing? No, I love this topic because, as again, as a historian, I walk into a library and I say, wow, there's a section over there called fiction, and then there's a section over here called uh, you know, history. And history is right. meant to be true, and fiction is meant to be false. And if you mix up the, you know, if there's an earthquake and all the books are on the floor, how do you know what's true and what's false? And I think that's the way that people are approaching the Internet. Like there's this mass of books laying on the floor, a mountain of books, and they have no idea how to put stuff on the history shelves and how to put stuff on the fiction shelves. Yes, I absolutely think it's solvable. Uh, do I think people are going to invest in the right areas to make it clear? That's not so obvious to me because I see a decline in investment in historians, librarians for that matter. It's like we're walking away from the institutions we know take us on the clear and steady path and we're moving towards people who simply build bookshelves and hope that the bookshelves somehow automatically self-determine whether the information on them is worth reading or safe. And I think what we've seen, a perfect example of this is Ronald Reagan in his term as president. The, the, the providers of the information, the pipeline, if you will, of information, wanted to keep a, a bar high enough that they weren't polluting children's minds with uh, toxic advertising. And Reagan asked them to lower it so that they didn't have any, just to let the market regulate itself. We saw a dramatic increase in obesity and diabetes and the problems in, in children, uh, consumer behavior, uh, addiction, after that as a direct result. And we see today social media companies, back to your point, self-regulating, but it's not enough and it's not fast enough. Like they just announced they're going to start banning miracle cures and miracle drugs because they see it's a faster turnaround time, but they see a direct impact on children. Um, you see Juul being uh, accused, essentially, of uh, promoting smoking in children through these marketing measures. And so, yeah, we absolutely have to have people hold themselves accountable, but really, there's a fox in the hen house effect here, where if you ask people to hold themselves accountable, they really have to feel the pain, which sometimes is a tall ask. Whereas if you bring it to them and say, here's the pain, and I'm telling you this is what's happening, and they respect that you deliver that message on behalf of the people that you represent, that's a more healthy relationship than just assuming someone who's going to make money from it is naturally going to feel the pain of people they can't see and they don't care about. You know, the thing about this whole, like, what is truth kind of question, like, you can imagine two extremes, like one is two plus two is four, and that uh, can be said to be true or false. And then you can have another extreme, which are, you know, polar bears are the best bears. 
And that may or may not be true, or there may not even be a measure of is that true or not. And then there's something in the middle, which I think so many things are, which are like um, deficits are bad for the economy. Like, how do you say whether that's true or not? Like, how would even a human say whether that's true? And unfortunately, if 90% of statements fall into that bucket, you you are left with, you can say, here are the people that agree with that statement, and, and here are their credentials. You, But but it's hard to, to say definitively that that is a true statement or that is a false statement. Yeah, I think we find this in every discipline, and I think it's good to have a market of disciplines. So in veterinary science, for example, you definitely have a model of collecting information, storing it, evaluating it, and adapting, and that's actually how they got rid of uh, the rinder pest or the cowpox. A uh, long time after they got rid of smallpox, which was actually gotten rid of by using the same model, but they used cowpox to get rid of smallpox and then waited forever to get rid of cowpox. And that was a political decision. They knew what they needed to do, but it was just a matter of going through the process. In other words, you have experts, and those experts have a scientific process, if you will, and then they have transparency to demonstrate their work. And then you might have naysayers, but if you establish that the science of collecting information with a transparent model and peer review, for example, if you establish that that's working and can show how it's working, then you shouldn't over-rotate on the naysayers who haven't been able to prove anything. Again, under the Reagan administration, there's a famous case where for the first five years of his presidency, he refused to allow any discussion of the AIDS epidemic. More Americans died before they admitted that it was an epidemic. 10,000 Americans essentially were estimated dead, uh, may have been more, far greater than 9-11, and Reagan still wasn't addressing it as an issue. Uh, once they opened the science and they allowed people to talk about it, then it became clear that we had a way of saying that, yes, it was killing people, and yes, we knew how to isolate it, and yes, we could figure out a cure for it. So it just took time. And so more Americans died from AIDS than died in the Civil War, over 700,000, basically. And so you kind of have to look at this as, why did Reagan say we shouldn't talk about this? Why did he say it's uh, fake news? And it comes down to people like Justice Roberts, who's now in the Supreme Court, actively saying, and it's recorded, saying, we should let the naysayers have the day. If somebody says, I don't believe the science, then maybe we shouldn't accept the scientists. So this is a problem we've dealt with for a long time, and I think a lot of it ties back to a turning point in America where we allowed the market to decide because there was an advantage for people to do that. That's a, a really uh, unfortunate decision for America because instead we could have used what has been used for centuries, whether you look at the Persian Empire or whether you look at the Arab Empire or whether you look at the British Empire, they each had a way of developing science and developing measures to find truth. So history has lots of great lessons about these peer-based review systems and authority and who's allowed to be an expert and why and how to be transparent in your work. Uh, we, we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. We just have to accept the fact that when people are in a position of power and they decide to use the destruction of knowledge for their own benefit, we have a imbalance. We have a problem. A lot of people are going to die. There's going to be a lot of harm. And to set that right, we have to go back to these old models. So... <clears throat> As we come close to wrapping up, you know, you worry about the power of the government, and you worry about the power of of corporations that are driven by profit. You're worried about people who um, uh, deny scientific truth. You worry about all all of these 
things, and you come up with all kinds of examples of when power is abused and when people put their own interests ahead of the, the group and all of the rest. When you wrap all of that up, are you are you optimistic we're going to sort it all out, or would you say it's still an open question and we may this may all be vaulting us into some dystopian? There is no truth. All the power is concentrated in the hands of a few, and all of that world. Like, do you? What do you think in the end is going to happen? I'm very optimistic, although I think I come across as a skeptic and a cynic. But I think that that's my way of getting to a solution. So, you know, Dr. Mill coined the term dystopia as the opposite of utopia, and I want to be careful that I'm not sure I believe in utopia any more than I believe in dystopia. There's a sort of middle ground here where we're constantly improving upon what we have. And I think we've definitely come a long way, and we continue to improve. People are better off in a lot of ways than they've ever been. I think the technology has gotten us to a place where we can disprove things like everyone's going to run out of food or there's going to be no place for people to live. We use technology to solve these problems, and I'm trying to be one of the people that uses technology in that way to find harm, to find suffering, and to avert it at mass scale. That's what my optimism is based on, is to, to play that role. But that role is a utopian view. If you say we're, we're improving things, we have been improving, we will continue to improve them. Someday we'll wake up and we'll be in a world we can't imagine any better than it is. I, I, yeah, I don't believe in the utopia, but I also don't believe in the dystopia. So I think I just sort of, they're we're bad. Gonna and like we're going to stumble along indefinitely. Yes, and improve, constantly improve, um, which is very similar to like the UDA model, the observation model. It's similar to the uh, Plan, Do, Check, Act model, PDCA of uh, Schuert, Deming. Uh, statisticians look at this and they say, well, maybe you can't be 100% certain, but you can be 80%, 90%, and that's worth investing in. If you try to be 100%, you'll just put yourself out of business or run out of money. It's impossible. The fool's errand. So people that say that things are great, perfect, tend to be ignoring the fact that there's a 10% or just overlooking it or accepting it. But I think being honest about the fact that there's that 10% worth fixing is the key. Of course, it can be worse than that. We may be at a 50%, 50% failing, and that's where we really have to jump in. And I have a lot of experience in getting into companies where they really have little to no security, they're at risk, they've had a lot of breaches, and we clean it up, we go after the folks that did the bad stuff. We help the people protect themselves. So, yeah, I'm optimistic that I can do those things, uh, and I'm just trying to do it at greater and greater scale. Well, you're a fascinating person. I'm sure many people listening to the show are going to want to follow what you do. What are the various ways that they can do that? Uh, Flying Penguin is maybe the best. I tend to throw random thoughts into my blog there, flyingpenguin.com. All right. Flyingpenguin.com. Go ahead. Oh, and then I occasionally will be speaking, so various conferences. So I have some videos up on YouTube. But I mostly post everything to Flying Penguin to keep it one place. All right. Well, I want to thank you for a fascinating conversation. If you ever want to come back, we're here and would love to, to pick up where we left off. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks a bunch, Toby. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI. And if you have, we'd like to encourage you to go to gigaohm.com where you can see blogs, podcasts, and read research reports on all the latest trends in IT and the tech industry. For all your future forward advice on tech, gigaohm.com is the place to be.